This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, maybe you remember that during the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald Trump often talked about an American soldier in Afghanistan who became the longest-held American POW since Vietnam. For five years, he was a POW. Trump said he was, quote, a dirty, rotten traitor who should be shot or thrown from a plane. He was talking about Bo Bergdahl, who walked away from his platoon's base in Afghanistan. This was in 2009 and was quickly captured by the Taliban. Eventually, President Obama traded Taliban prisoners to get him back, and he was court-martialed. The whole story tells us a lot about what was wrong with America's longest war. The Bo Bergdahl story is told in a new book. It's called American Cipher, and we'll speak with the co-author Michael Ames later in this hour. Also, you don't have to be a woman to stand up for reproductive rights. Katha Pollitt will talk about men and abortion. And finally, John Nichols talks to Ilhan Omar. First up, how we remember those who fought and died in America's wars in the Mideast. Trump Watch starts right now. Recently, Andrew Basevich visited the Middle East Conflicts Memorial. It's like the Vietnam Memorial, but for all the Americans who fought and died in all of America's wars in the Mideast. Andrew Basevich is a professor of history emeritus at Boston University and author of many books, including America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History, and most recently, The American Century at Twilight. He writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, Tom Dispatch, and The Nation. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Well, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and the World War II Memorial are on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. The Korean War Memorial is nearby. Where is the Middle East Conflicts Memorial? It is located in Marseilles. Illinois, spelled the same as Marseille, France, but pronounced differently. Marseilles is a town of about 5,000, uh, located on the Illinois River. It is, it is one of those many, I think, Midwestern towns that, uh, you know, there was prosperity visited once, left, and, and never came back. But that's where the Middle East uh, Conflicts War Memorial is located. And I suppose this is Trump country? Uh, it is. Uh, Marseilles, I don't know how the people of Marseilles specifically voted in the last presidential election, but Marseilles uh, is located in LaSalle County, Illinois, and LaSalle, LaSalle County easily uh, voted for, for Trump. And I imagine most of the people in Marseilles, Illinois, are white. <laughs> they, they, are, they are indeed. I think it's like 96% uh, white. But the, the genesis of the uh, of the memorial, I think, is quite interesting. Yeah, uh, it Tell is us. the handiwork of the, of Illinois bikers, motorcyclists, uh, some of whom are veterans, some of whom I think uh, I know are veterans of the Vietnam War. Uh, but uh, they decided uh, roughly a decade ago that there really ought to be uh, an equivalent of those memorials that you just mentioned that are located on the Mall in Washington. And they decided the place for that memorial to be was in was in Marseilles, and and there it is. And uh, I have to say, it's not particularly 
uh, noticed. It's not frequently visited. Uh, to my knowledge, there have been no presidential candidates who've used uh, the, the memorial as a backdrop uh, for, a, for a speech. But I have to say that I find it uh, uh, touching uh, and admirable uh, that these citizens uh, have gone to the trouble of raising the money and, uh, and creating this thing. The memorial consists of a, a series of... Uh, of, uh, of, of granite, polished granite uh, panels uh, in which are engraved uh, the names of all of our Middle East wars dead. And I think the point to emphasize here is it's not simply Iraq and Afghanistan since 9-11, but those who died uh, were gunned down by Israelis, um, the USS Liberty, who, who died in the Beirut bombing, uh, who died in the failed Iran rescue mission, uh, and so on. In other words, uh, quite a number of conflicts before 9-11 ever came around. You know, I would have thought that if there's a war memorial in southern Illinois, that that would, or central Illinois, that would be the work of a energetic and dedicated member of Congress. Is there any uh, Congress members uh, evident in, or was it all the bikers? Uh, I, I, I should have a better answer for you. I am not aware of any uh, prominent political sponsor. Uh, when I visited, uh, there were a couple of uh, uh, gentlemen of my age, that is to say, past our prime, uh, who, who were there, who were involved in, in managing the project. You know, I think they were like 65 to 70. Mm -hmm. uh, and they certainly gave me the impression that this, this has been from the outset, in a sense, a grassroots uh, project uh, done from the bottom up. Uh, every year there's a, there's a biker rally uh, that, that comes to the memorial, and they have kind of a, you know, a cookout. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's also the occasion in which they uh, unveil the new names of those who have been killed in our Middle East wars since, since the year before. There are now something like 8,000. Uh, names wow. uh, on these uh, various uh, panels, uh, and in, I mean, in a way, I sort, of, I sort of wish everybody would go there. I certainly wish. Uh, I said that in a little piece I wrote. I think it'd be wonderful. Uh, so if let all me. Of those competing for President Trump's job would uh, would use it as a backdrop. Go well, there. What? What? Uh, how would this work? I mean, well, first of all, I wanted to just talk a little bit more about what the memorial looks like. There are 8,000 names yep. on marble plaques. You say there's is, there's also some text on the memorial. Yeah, so uh, imagine an arc of uh, marble uh, panels. I'm calling them panels, but they're, you know, uh, probably five feet uh, high, maybe six feet high and eight feet long. Uh, in an arc, fit backing against uh, the river. In front of them, there's flagpoles, uh, and there's uh, another uh, uh, granite uh, 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 object that, that declares that uh, all of those commemorated died in the cause of freedom uh, and that they will never be uh, forgotten. So what do you think about this idea that they died in the cause of freedom? Well, I tend not to. I tend not to agree with that. I mean, I think that uh, there's a ritual in our country uh, that somehow requires us uh, to state that those who have died, whether they died in the Civil War or whether they died in Vietnam, uh, died in the cause of freedom. I don't think that those claims 
stand up to close scrutiny. They do, perhaps in some cases, uh, but in other cases they do not, and they certainly do not with regard to our various and sundry wars and interventions in the Middle East. I, I fully uh, endorse the proposition uh, that, that the men and women who are remembered there died in service to our country, uh, but uh, it doesn't seem to me that uh, freedom, uh, much less democracy, uh, has actually been the uh, impetus uh, for the various and sundry wars we have fought. Uh, it, it, you know, why, why we fought those wars ends up being a fairly complicated and interesting question. You yeah. know, one answer is oil. Uh, one answer is Israel. One answer is Saudi Arabia. Uh, one answer is uh, administrations get us into a great big complicated fix, and nobody has the courage uh, to say, boy, we screwed up. Let's get the heck out of here. Uh, so successive administrations uh, end up compounding uh, mistakes made by earlier uh, administrations, even, even while claiming. Uh, that they are doing things uh, uh, differently. And so, you know, so here we are uh, all these decades later, and I say decades because, again, the memorial begins well before 9-11. Here we are all these decades later, and we're still fighting in Afghanistan. You know, we're still uh, got troops in Syria, in, in Iraq. We're still participating in the bombing of Yemen. We're still participating in the disorder uh, in Libya. Nobody has any sense of when this is going to end. And I have to say, um, it's been a long time since I've heard anybody even try uh, to explain what is the strategic rationale uh, for, for what we're doing, for the bombs we're dropping, for the money we're spending, for the people we're killing. It just goes uh, on and on and on. And I think when you go to Marseilles and you look at the memorial, uh, it, it prompts you to, to you know, think about it. And, and how, what, how did this happen? How did this happen? And, and what do you make of the fact that the memorial, which raises this question, even if indirectly, is in such an out-of-the-way place? Well, I think in a way that's entirely appropriate. Uh, because, uh, I mean, this is a, I'll make a very broad and general statement here, but I, I don't think based American people want to talk about uh, how this all came about. Uh, I'm certain uh, that our members of our political class, for the most part, don't want to talk about how all this came about, don't want to have a serious conversation about how we are going to extricate ourselves from pointless wars uh, and perhaps take another tack toward, toward trying to correct at least some of the damage uh, that we have inflicted on that uh, part of the world. So it's a lot, it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, mouth... Uh, cliches about uh, supporting the troops, you know, to say people died for freedom, uh, and, uh, and in, in a sense to change the subject. And so the fact that uh, the uh, big uh, war memorials are in, on the mall in Washington, and this particular war memorial happens to be in Marseilles, Illinois, I think that alone is a very telling uh, fact. Uh, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Andrew Basevich. He recently visited the Middle East Wars Memorial. It's not on the National Mall in Washington. It's in Marseilles, Illinois. Uh, you, you, uh, the presidential election is now heating up, and you've said that you have a proposal for the candidates. What, what is it? 
Well, you know, I mean, it, it is. It's, it's remarkable how much it's heating up already, and how much press attention is given to, uh, you know, speeches that uh, all these folks, particularly the Democrats, uh, are given. And, and of course, they in in the early stages, uh, it seems to me, you know, they spent a lot of time in uh, Iowa because that's where the caucuses are. They spent a lot of time in New Hampshire because that's where the first primary is. And uh, in between is this place called Illinois. And what I was suggesting, that it might be a wonderful thing uh, if the various candidates to succeed uh, Mr. Trump all went singly, I don't mean at the same time, but all decided they were going to visit uh, the Middle East Wars Memorial and give a speech and talk about those wars and give, give their own assessment of those wars, explain what they're going to do about those wars. Are they going to win them? Are they going to uh, get out? Uh, you know, are they just going to allow events to continue along? I think that that would be, we're candidates to do that. I think it would be an extraordinarily revealing and uh, educational opportunity, enabling us to take stock of them and to help us decide which of these uh, would-be candidates uh, are worthy of our support. So you don't think that uh, candidate speeches at this uh, place uh, should be about uh, uh, people who gave their lives for freedom or, or that America is the indispensable uh, nation or the sole superpower, the things that are usually said at places like this? Well, you make, a, you make a good point, because more often than not, if you put a politician in front of some kind of a, of a memorial like that, you're going to get exactly that kind of a speech. And, and, and were, were these uh, candidates to do that, I think they would expose themselves as being, uh, I mean, I'll say it bluntly, unworthy uh, of the office that they aspire to. Uh, a, 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 a candidate who deserves to be seriously, uh, ser deserves serious consideration for the presidency ought to go to a place like the uh, monument in Marseilles, Illinois, and have something serious to say about the wars that are commemorated there. Not, not simply reciting cliches, uh, but, but to... Uh, to, to, to help us come, as a people, to come to some understanding of what, in fact, has been a catastrophic uh, sequence of events. Too many of our politicians want to avoid talking about that sequence of events. Uh, the memorial is a place to overcome that kind of hesitation and perhaps uh, speak some truths. Um, you know, maybe that's naive on my part, but 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 it would be a it would be a a good thing. It would be a good thing. Andrew Basevich, he wrote about the Middle East conflicts memorial for Tom Dispatch and the Nation and the L.A. Times. It's a memorable piece. Uh, Andrew Basevich, thanks for this piece and thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thank you very much. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, you don't have to be a woman to stand up for reproductive rights. Katha Pollitt will talk about men and abortion. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <laughs>
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, the American soldier held by the Taliban for five years. His story says a lot about what was wrong with America's war in Afghanistan. We'll speak with Michael Ames, co-author of the new book, American Cipher. But first, new abortion bans are springing up in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio, and elsewhere. And Katha Pollitt says... That makes this a good time to talk about men and abortion. Katha, of course, is a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. We reached her today in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, the latest headline about men and abortion is about Joe Biden. Turns out he still supports the Hyde Amendment, which bans federal funds for abortions except in cases of rape or incest or when the life of the mother is in danger. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah, I do. Oh, Joe, come on already. All the other Democratic candidates, all 500 of them, support uh, (laughs) getting rid of the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is so deeply and profoundly unfair because what it says is that you have to be able to afford an abortion and uh, in order to have one, and that's not fair. It's excluded from uh, all kinds of health services, uh, whereas all other you know all kinds of other things are not. So it's, it really singles out this one procedure, and it's deeply, deeply unfair because the people who suffer from the Hyde Amendment are poor. They're disproportionately black, they're young, they're rural. Um, They're all the people who fall through the cracks of other health cares. And um, it's completely wrong. Why is he doing this? Well, I think the reason he's doing this, he's always been uh, in favor of the Hyde Amendment and has voted for it many, many times. And I think the reason he's in favor of it is that he has an idea in his head that white Catholic men, working-class men, really care about this. Um, And that's who he's aiming at. Um, And it's really wrong because it's that whole thing he does where, you know, moving to the center, I mean, it's actually moving right of center because uh, Americans support abortion rights. Um, And it is really unfair for him to put his religious beliefs ahead of the needs of women in this country. Well, if we look at opinion polls, do we find uh, a difference between men and women in their support for abortion rights? Well, the interesting thing is not so much. Um, I mean, it, it always depends on how you ask the question, but not only in the United States, but in many other countries, uh, both men and women have similar views. There's similar pro-choice views. And, you know, that's really good. Um, it's really good that men uh, support women's right to control their fertility. Um, But where you see a difference, I think, is in the intensity of those ideas, of those convictions, which is not something a poll can easily uh, measure. So let's, let's, what, what exactly is uh, intensity? How do you, uh, how do you evaluate intensity? Well, let's see. uh, The way I evaluate intensity is, uh, do I see men 
at a reproductive rights conference? Do I see them at a meeting? Do, do they, I see them at a fundraiser? Do they volunteer on the pro-choice side? Um, and I have to say, I don't see that. The only time where I see uh, men is when they're gathering specifically of abortion providers. Many of those are men, and, you know, great, that's wonderful. That's really important. Um, but it, it has to be like a really big march before the pro-choice men come out in big numbers. And, um, and, and what, even then, they're not half. And, and what I about... Count, I count these things. You count. <laughs> I do. I'm always keeping track. Counting is good. Counting is... We need counting. Uh, so that's the pro-abortion men. When you look around, there aren't very many of them to be counted. What about anti-abortion men? Oh, they seem... you know, men are all over the place there. I, I went to the... Uh, you know, I, I go to the uh, March for Life in Washington every year. It's men, men, men. Um, and when you look at who who pickets abortion clinics, who harasses uh, patients on their way in, um, it's it's very heavily men. Um, you know, uh, when they brought that lawsuit about, uh, you know, against having... Um, uh, against allowing people to get really close to patients on their way in. they It was, the, you know, the sweet grandmother who just wants to hand you a pamphlet. That's not what it's really all about. Um, but anyway, yeah, the, the pro-choice, pro-choice men are rare on the ground, and pro-life men, quote-unquote, pro-life, are uh, everywhere. And why do you think men are so much more active in the anti-abortion movement. Can you explain the intensity there? Well, I think they identify with the fetus. They, <laughs> you know, they're not a woman, but they could be a fetus. Uh, they were a fetus. Um, and so I think that's part of it. And I think that um, there is a, an aspect to the uh, anti-abortion movement that is about restoring traditional gender roles with men on top and women as, you know, the fertile wives and mothers. Um, and they like that. They want that back. Um, so I think that that is a lot of what it's all about. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, the, after I wrote this column saying, come on, men, step up to the plate, uh, a lot of men wrote in and they said, um, well, this doesn't really concern me, and you women never like it when men interfere any, get involved anyway. You're always telling us we're doing it wrong. <laughs> so I'm just going to stay out of this. And I'm thinking, oh, how did those women get pregnant? Tell me. <laughs> so, uh, but there is a, a, a question that this raises here. Isn't abortion rights a women's issue? Isn't the heart of it the rights of women to control yes. their own bodies? Absolutely. But why does that mean that men can't help? I mean, what if white people said, well, you know, civil rights, that's really a black problem. I don't want to get involved in that. Um, I'm always doing it wrong. We wouldn't put up with that. Um, what about immigrants? If you're not an immigrant, you're never going to be an immigrant. So why should you get involved in their issues? Because it's the right thing to do. And uh, not only is it politically the right thing to do in your, analysis, in, in your analysis, you also think men have a big personal stake in this particular right of women. Yes, they do. And this is something I think men need to think about a little more, which is 
Men also have their lives stunted by unwanted childbearing. Um, when a pregnancy pushes them into marriage, they too suffer. Uh, they can get married to the wrong person. They have to drop out of school and go work at a gas station or whatever um, and uh, give up ambitions and dreams. A lot of the things that women see very clearly as the reason why they need abortion rights uh, is true for men also. Um, and, and sometimes I think, you know, I think, John, of all these people, you know, how, how guilty and terrible you must feel for not doing right by children you didn't mean to have, have no real connection to, maybe you've never even met them. Um, these are things women think about a lot, and they think that men should think about, too. Uh, if you're just tuned in, we're speaking with Katha Pollitt. Her new column at The Nation is titled A Man's Guide to Abortion. Uh, you know, I, I want to go back to that uh, that um, opinion poll uh, results because it is kind of striking. According to Pew, 60% of women and 57% of men say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Statistically, that's probably no difference. Um how do you explain the the uh, the fact that there seems to be no difference on uh, in this basic measure? Well, because I think um, the majority of people in this country are pro-choice. Yeah, um, and it, it, the difference is that a lot of the women are really concerned about this issue, and for a lot of the men, it's just oh yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> so we've been talking sort of abstractly here about rights and intensity. Let's get specific. You think men should do more to support women's right to abortion. What should they, or maybe I should say we, be doing? Well, I think that um, men should um, use condoms more than they do now um, and not have that be a responsibility on the woman to bring it up and have the condoms there and all like that. Um, I remember, I remember reading, you know, articles in women's magazines about how you should always be prepared with condoms. And I'm thinking, I should always be prepared with condoms? What, what about him? <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, um, then, then there's another thing, which is, where is the men's mass movement demanding a male birth control pill? That birth control pill has been on the horizon, you know, as long as... Uh, the sun has <laughs> been on the horizon. Okay. That's a bad analogy, but but you know what I mean. Um, it, and it never really happens. Um, but you know, women fought for birth control. Um, I don't see men fighting for male birth control, which would be ver- a very helpful thing to have. Um, and what about and, yes? And on, and you have uh, so we're talking about specific need, things. To, okay, specifically, they need to volunteer as clinic defenders and patient escorts political campaign workers and fundraisers. They need to give money to pro-choice candidates. They need to march and demonstrate, uh, talk to men about abortion, get active together. Um, they need to donate uh, to abortion funds, especially in, one of, in the abortion ban states that are getting ever more numerous. Um, and um, all those things. That's a good list. You know, I... I yeah, uh, you know, we're our show is based in Los Angeles. You're you're in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where we live. Clinic defense isn't a, a problem, you know. Where we live, uh, you know, all of our local candidates, it's just assumed they're all uh, 
they're all in yeah. favor of of women's rights. Uh, so we're, what we're talking here about is places where we don't, where you and I do uh, not live. I'm not so sure that's true. For example, I did um, clinic uh, patient escorting at Choices, which is an abortion clinic in Queens, and they have you know this parade of priests and nuns and extremely religious rosary-saying people who, uh, and, and also evangelicals. They've had to sort of divide the time up because the, Christ- the Catholics and the evangelicals don't get along so well. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that there you need, you know, what I was doing, what, I don't want to give myself too much credit, I only did it once, but, you know, you just go to the subway station, you find the patients, and you bring them over. A man can do that. Yeah. Um, but just because we're in these incredibly blue liberal spaces doesn't mean that there aren't anti-choice people who are very active there. And, and uh, you know, here in West L.A. and Santa Monica and so on, it's totally blue. But, you know, there's Orange County, there's uh, the Inland Empire, there's, it's only a 20-minute drive to places where evangelicals are quite important. Well, there it is. <laughs> now, one one other question. Uh, you're, we're talking specifically about what men can should be doing to support women's right to abortion. Just to get personal here for a minute, what about paying for an abortion? Equality well, of women, doesn't that mean you pay 50-50? Well, you know, that always peeves me. Um, you should pay the whole bill, Mr. Man. Um, half is fake equality. This woman is going through a not best day of her life uh, with sanitary napkins and follow-up visits and all kinds of stuff like that. That's her share. Having the abortion is her share. And uh, men have more money than women, and they should spend it helping their girlfriend out 100%. Well, that's pretty decisive. Um, And I'm interested in what... So you said since your column uh, appeared... You've gotten responses from men, and one of the responses has been, well, whenever I do anything, the women say I'm doing it wrong, so I guess I shouldn't have anything to do with this. What other responses have you gotten? Um, let's see. Well, I, end, I ended my column with a little joke about uh, where I, I said, I know men like sports medicine. Oh, oh by the way, yeah, hey, listen, let me, yeah. let, let's go there. You already said... said that it's time for men to step up to the plate. I, I right. think let's okay. let's look at some other sports meta, me, metaphors because that is the way to speak okay, to so men. So somebody... so if you don't strike out, guys. Yeah, right. If so you get if you, in... if you get past first base, what then? So somebody wrote in to the nation. What kind of sexist crap is this? Because you're talking about men, you have to put it in terms of sports metaphors. Because men are cavemen, and those is the only terms they can understand. Would it be okay for me to say I know women like ballet and cooking? So let's all bake a cake together and pirouette to happiness. <laughs> the thing about the nation commenters, there are these sort of frogs, these toads. They sit on the nation comment threads all day long. I don't know. They have nothing else to do, and. Uh, so they're and insulted. They have no sense of humor, none at all. They're insulted by the fact that you think that sports metaphors is a way to communicate with men. So I guess you struck out with these guys. I guess I uh, <laughs> I, uh, I knocked one out of the park. No, 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 <laughs> you didn't. The opposite. <laughs> yeah, the opposite. Yeah, but you failed to knock it out of the park uh, with them. Um, I, you know, uh, there's one other thing I would say to our 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 sports uh, friends, uh, 
Guys, if you don't do your part in supporting abortion rights, you could end up in the penalty box. Oh, okay, that's a good one. <laughs> so, Katha Pollitt wrote about men and abortion for The Nation magazine. You can read her piece at thenation.com. You can read the comments at thenation.com. Katha, any final thoughts here on our messages to men? Well, I think we're in a terrible, terrible situation with regard to reproductive rights. I mean, Trump has really uh, just gone all out uh, to take them away and handed this all over to religious fanatics. It's very disturbing. And it's really time for us all to work together to make sure that we still have some left by the time we say goodbye to that dreadful man. Can I just say one more thing about Trump? Don't yes. you think Trump has probably uh, impregnated women who've had to get abortions? And don't you think that was a, uh, he regarded that as a very good idea? Well, I wouldn't want to speculate on his private life. That's probably libelous. But um, he's a public figure. He's a public figure. Yeah, I mean, being a a New York uh, man about town, uh, I I think there everyone assumed he was you know pro-abortion for his whole life until he became president. He was, and then somebody said to him, "You know, you'll never get elected as a uh, to the White House as a Republican if you're pro-choice." And he said, "I'm pro-life," just like that. Just like that. Well. uh, Donald Trump. So, Katha Pollitt, read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. I think you really scored with this piece. <laughs> Thank you, John. It's nice, to, it's nice to be on your show. Bye-bye. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, the former American POW, who Trump said should be shot or thrown from an airplane. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, John Nichols talks with Ilhan Omar. We'll listen to some clips. But first, during the presidential campaign, Donald Trump often talked about an American soldier in Afghanistan who became the longest-held American POW since Vietnam. Trump said he was, quote, a dirty, rotten traitor, close quote, who should be shot or thrown from a plane. He was talking about Bo Bergdahl, who walked away from his platoons based in eastern Afghanistan. This was in 2009. And he was quickly captured by the Taliban. Eventually, President Obama traded Taliban prisoners to get him back. He was court-martialed, but not sentenced to prison. The whole story tells us a lot about what was wrong with America's longest war. Now the Bo Bergdahl story is told in a new book. It's called American Cipher. And we're joined now by co-author Michael Ames. He's a contributor to Newsweek and Harper's. He's also written for The Atlantic and The Daily Beast. Michael Ames, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, listeners may recall hearing about Bo Bergdahl, not just from Donald Trump, but also from Sarah Koenig on the Serial podcast, which devoted its second season to the story. Our first question, which is the big one, 
Why did Bo Bergdahl walk off his base in Afghanistan? That is that was the million dollar question for for the five years he was he was a prisoner and for uh, after he came home for a while. But fortunately, we do have an explanation. He sat willingly. He volunteered to sit for an interview with the Army investigating general on his case, and he spoke to him for two days. And he went into great detail about his reasons. Now, just because we have that reason, and I can even tell it to you, doesn't mean that it might make that much sense. And a lot of people will remain skeptical because it seems so far-fetched. But I think the, the sort of delusional nature of his reasoning is an insight into, into the fact that Bo didn't belong there in the first place. So tell us, what was this reasoning of his? His reasoning was that he wanted to set off a uh, alert for a missing soldier. He wanted to create this uh, hubbub around him. It was a stunt. He wanted to walk through the night from his base about 18 miles to another forward operating base. Now, soldiers who've been there and will say, well, that's insane because it's uh, Taliban territory and there's no way uh, at that altitude and in that terrain he could do it. But where Bo is from in Idaho, and I used to live in his hometown for many years, the terrain is very similar to where he grew up in Idaho. And he spent a lot of time in the backcountry by himself. And the distance from his base to where he was trying to get to was roughly the distance from his parents' house to where he used to work every day. He wanted to go there to make a statement. He wanted to talk to a general, and he wanted to say everything that he thought was going wrong with the war. Some of his critiques of what he was seeing are legitimate, things about the war that just didn't make sense. Other things he was seeing were not legitimate, such as he thought their battalion commander was going to send his entire platoon on a suicide mission, and there's no real, there was no real um, evidence for that. And how did Bo Bergdahl, walking off his base in Afghanistan in 2009, get to be such a huge thing for the American military in Afghanistan, which then spent years searching for him? It's a great question. In the summer and fall of 2009, the Army turned the missing soldier crisis that Bergdahl kicked off into an opportunity. Of course, they went looking for their soldier that was missing within the first couple of days. It was a very high priority. It was totally legitimate. But after several days, it started to change and it turned into something else. Intelligence was was known within days and certainly with, within less than two weeks that he had been taken over the border to Pakistan. Even after that was known, soldiers were continually sent on these search missions for him for months afterwards. And those men were lied to about what they were doing. Their commanders were using it as an excuse to run more aggressive raids. And they still haven't really received an honest accounting from the Army about it. And then, how did Bo Bergdahl get to be a political issue for Trump so many years later, in 2016? Well, Trump picked up on it even earlier. Trump was on this right from the moment Bergdahl came home. And that's because Trump was already wired into a political communications campaign that kicked off the day Bergdahl was recovered on the Afghan-Pakistani border, May 31st, 2014, when, hours later, Richard Grinnell, who was a Republican operative who Roger Stone once told me was too uh, shady for him to work with, 
went on Fox News and said that Bergdahl was looking for the Taliban. And he just dropped it casually into the conversation. There was no evidence for it. Uh, in fact, it, he was recycling Taliban propaganda merely in saying it because it was the Taliban all along who was saying, well, Bergdahl has converted and Bergdahl has now joined us and is, is fighting the holy war. There was no evidence for it. There never has been evidence for it. But Grinnell said it that day, and Trump said it a few days later on Fox News. And it became something that he saw was uh, a good trigger for his audiences, and he stuck with it all the way through the election. Of course, as soon as he became the commander-in-chief, he stopped talking about Bo Bergdahl. And, of course, he also focused on the fact that Obama had also made a big deal about Bo Bergdahl and getting getting him back, returning him from the Taliban with a ceremony in the Rose Garden with Bo Bergdahl's parents, and Trump also focused on that. As did, as did many people who were confused and outraged by how the Obama White House handled it that day. And we interviewed uh, Obama White House senior aides, and there's no one who will say that what they did that day was the right thing. They definitely bungled it that day by presenting it as a political victory rather than what it was, which was a lopsided prisoner trade that was the, um, the best deal available that the White House and State Department thought they could execute. And they used it for their own political gain in a clumsy fashion. But everyone involved in this case has used what Bo Bergdahl did. And that's why he's such an interesting lens onto the way American politics works around the war. Everyone at every stage used Bo for their own institutional advantage. And that goes from the army to the Taliban, to the Obama White House, to the Republicans upon his return. Well, who was Bo Bergdahl when he walked off his base in Afghanistan? How come he was in the army in the first place? He was a guy who didn't belong there in the first place. And that's something, as I said, I lived in his hometown in Haley, Idaho for many years. It's something everyone who knew him knew because he was such a, a, a gentle soul, kind of kind-hearted kid. Just to put it in some context, before joining the army, he was considering joining Cirque du Soleil and actually traveled to a Cirque du Soleil audition. He also was, was in talks, his parents, um, who were religious Christians, were in talks with their a pastor who was doing missionary work in Uganda. And Bo was also trying to go to Uganda to help the villagers there and teach them self-defense. So he was really a guy, a young kid, looking for a purpose. But he was incredibly physically fit, incredibly strong and smart, but he had some pretty significant social problems and emotional problems. So two years prior to him enlisting to the Army, he washes out of the Coast Guard basic training with um, kind of a panic attack, anxiety breakdown. The Coast Guard issues a form that says he should not be able to serve in the armed services again unless he gets treatment and screening, so on and so forth. The Army simply provided a waiver and took him in anyway. Because in 2008, with a war in Iraq still raging and the Obama administration pivoting to a major troop surge in Afghanistan, the Army lowered its standards. And what that typically meant was maybe now they'll take in guys with felony records, or maybe they'll take in men with lower IQ or with other issues. 
Bergdahl was a fairly unique case. Here's a guy who looks like a soldier, knows his soldier handbook. He had dreamed of being a soldier for years, and he knew weapons. And he, from a distance, looked like he looked the part. But when he got in there, he, because of his own unique idiosyncrasies and what was later diagnosed as a personality disorder, really didn't fit in at all and couldn't handle what was going on there. It didn't belong there in the first place because of the likelihood that he would do something as crazy as what he ultimately did. Let's talk for a minute about the recovery effort. Some of the most shocking stuff is about what the soldiers went through who were sent to look for him. Oh, yeah. And they were sent for months on these ridiculous, quote-unquote, search missions that were no longer search missions. They were anti-Taliban missions under the auspices of a different name, which is we're going to look for Bergdahl, even though he was already over in Pakistan. They were sent to fight the war. And these guys did the job um, as if they were actually looking for Bo, so you could understand why they would be so angry at him. Uh, But one of the things that that motivated some of my earliest sources to go on the record and talk about this is the fact that those people were lied to. Their families didn't know the full fact. And when some soldiers died on those missions, they believed they died looking for Bergdahl. But this is really an important point. The six soldiers who were often cited as killed looking for him, all of them died weeks after the army already had overwhelming intelligence And the rest of the intelligence agencies on the case had already come to the conclusion that Bergdahl was in Pakistan. Yeah, it's a a terrible story. Now let's talk about the the trial and the verdict. What do you make of the legal proceedings against him and the very controversial verdict they came up with? Well, the legal proceedings were an incredible waste of resources. There were four times as many Pentagon prosecutors on the government team as there was on the team that prosecuted Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So it was a politically driven case. It was the tale of Fox News wagging the dog of the Pentagon JAG Corps, which is a crazy dynamic that shouldn't have been allowed to go that far but for a variety of factors, everything from, from what John McCain said at the time when he was the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and he said that there would be hearings if there was, not, there was no punishment, and just from the power of the media entertainment system, it led to this incredibly overblown full court-martial that took resources away from the rest of the Army legal system, incredibly. As for the verdict... I don't think it was as controversial for the people who were following the case closely and who were going to all the hearings. He was reduced in rank. He did get a dishonorable discharge, which is equivalent to a felony. He simply was not thrown back in a cage. And I think people who heard what he had been through, who heard how the army used his crisis for its own gain, realized that 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 was a fair and reasonable verdict. So, in the end, what does the story of Bo Bergdahl tell us about what was wrong with America's longest war? I think Bo Bergdahl came to be a crucible of our country in general. Here's a kid who didn't, who didn't belong in this place, fighting for an army that didn't belong in this place. Here's a kid who's broken 
fighting for a war that's broken. And here's a kid whose idealism led him to do something completely insane. And I think we are a country whose idealism led us to waste immense resources and treasure in a war that was completely insane. The book is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan. Michael Ames is the co-author. Michael, thanks so much for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me, John. I'm John Wiener. You're listening to 90.7 KPFK in Los Angeles. Coming up at 4 o'clock on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Now it's time for our Washington political update. And for that, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent. And he's also a host of a new podcast from The Nation. John, welcome back. It's great to be with you. Big news at The Nation and in Podcastville. The magazine has launched a new podcast with you, John Nichols, as the host. It's called Next Left. It's not about this week's headlines it doesn't feature the magazine's writers and editors as guests. What is its focus? This podcast tries to look at the rising generation of political figures who have won local, state, and national office as insurgents, people who are challenging the status quo, not just within the Democratic Party, although frequently so, but also the status quo of our politics in general. It's a celebration of insurgency in many senses, but it also tries to do something else, and that is to get to know these people, to understand where they're coming from. To our view, these are some remarkable people. Well, your guest for the premiere episode, which is posted Tuesday at thenation.com, is Ilhan Omar. We have a couple of clips from that interview, but before we get to those, I just want to set the scene here for a minute. She's, of course, been under relentless attack for the last couple of months. Trump has been tweeting at her. She gets death threats all the time. And then you come along. What was it like sitting down with her face to face? Well, I've covered her some. So in many cases, the folks that we interview, um, be they members of Congress or state legislators, city council members around the country are folks that we have given some coverage to. So I, I was not surprised to find that she did not fit the stereotype that President Trump and Liz Cheney and others have tried to create. She is a exceptionally able political figure who defeated an incumbent state legislator to get elected to the legislature in 2016 then won a primary uh, to get elected to Congress in 2018, and has withstood everything that's been thrown at her. She's also someone with a deep sense of political history and political possibility. When you go into her office, there are two pictures that have prominence as you walk in. One, the lower of the two, is a picture of her being sworn in, the first woman of color to serve in Congress from Minnesota, the first Somali-American, the first naturalized African citizen, and one of the two first Muslim-American women, the first woman to wear a hijab in Congress. You know, I mean, all these firsts, right? And so she's her picture's there. But above her picture is a picture of Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman elected to Congress 50 years before Ilhan Omar. Yeah, so she's, she, I guess, to my mind, that, that juxtaposition summed up a lot. So let's listen 
Ilhan Omar on her political goals from the Next Left podcast, the new podcast from The Nation. We don't have to settle. We can fight to, ha to, to have our uh, Green New Deal. We can certainly get Medicare for all. We can cancel out student debt. We can certainly pass our, our housing for all bill. We can get universal school meals program up and running. But in order to do all of those things, we have to stop policing the world, <laughs> right? We, we have to not have, you know, over 800 bases, military bases around the world. We have to not spend 57 cents on the dollar on defense um, while we cut education and health care um, and housing funding. You also talked about with Ilhan Omar about her life before she was elected, about coming to America from Somalia as a kid with her family, about how her father first got a job at the airport. Indeed, when you land at MSP Airport, all of the people driving carts, pushing wheelchairs, almost all of them are Somali or Ethiopian. Uh, one of those was her father. And then her father got a job at the post office. Let's listen to what she told you then. It was it was a great job, and and he loved it. You know, um, he's a night owl like I am, and so he often worked a night shift. And I I worked with him one winter, uh, my junior year, going into senior year. Is it high school? Or in high school, you were a postal um, worker. I I did. I worked right. at the post office um, because I, I I needed to get a car. Um, this is the thing you do when you're a senior. Um, and my dad believed that you had to earn everything that you had in life and uh, told me I had to work <laughs> and that he was going to help find me a job that could could get me, you know, enough money to, to get my first car. And if I fell short, he'd help. And so I worked a, a night shift. I would, I would go in and come out at um, 7 a.m. in the morning and go to school uh, and, and be present for my 8.20 a.m. class. And I, I did that for, for six weeks and earned enough um, for him to supplement. What kind, of car, get, what kind of car did you get? I got uh, a two-door Red Cavalier. Nice. Yeah, right. yeah. good American-made car. And Enjoyed it for a little bit. Benefited from a union <laughs> work did. setting, yeah. got a good American-made car. Did you have yeah. a decent radio? It, it did. Yeah, what did you listen? I, what music did you listen to? Everything. Really? Everything. I, yeah. I I kind of really listen to you know I'm I'm a huge fan of pop music, obviously, but I I, I enjoy rock. I I I have surprise surprising to many people a huge love for country music, and I also just love Somali music. John Nichols talking with Ilhan Omar on the new Next Left podcast from The Nation. You can listen at thenation.com. You can subscribe at iTunes Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. John, congrats on the new podcast, and thanks for talking with us today. I'm honored to be with you, and I hope we do as well as you have. John Nichols from The Nation Magazine's new podcast, Next Left.
Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We have a postscript to the Katha Pollitt segment today. Minnesota remains a point of access for abortion services as neighboring states impose restrictions. This is reported yesterday in the Min Post online. Minnesota may be the land of 10,000 lakes, but when it comes to abortion access, it's becoming more like an island. Not just Alabama, Kentucky, Georgia, Ohio, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Missouri have now passed a more restrictive abortion laws, but in the Midwest, both Wisconsin and Iowa have passed laws banning abortion before the viability standard set by Roe v. Wade. Although Iowa's six-week ban was deemed unconstitutional by its own state Supreme Court uh, last year, but in Wisconsin, Iowa, North Dakota, and South Dakota, the states around Minnesota, many abortion clinics have closed in the last uh, decade. And abortion rights advocates say more women are coming from out of state to Minnesota Uh, when they need abortions. Both North and South Dakota just have one abortion clinic each remaining. Uh, So Minnesota remains a a island of sanity uh, in the fight for women's reproductive rights. This has been your Minnesota Moment news from my hometown of St. Paul. 